I want to read these song lyrics that we just sang because this is really the message today. Nothing but the blood. And you just think about this and let it sink in. What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. In other words, there's nothing that can pardon me but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing can cleanse but His blood. Nothing can for sin atone, not of any good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Those song lyrics capture what God has put in my heart for this message this morning and also, I think, capture what Paul was trying to say, what I tried to preach about last week when he said, when I came among you, I determined to know nothing but Jesus and Him crucified. I think there's an understanding, if you've ever read any of Paul's letters, that he didn't stop at the crucifixion, but I still feel the need to say that today. When he said Jesus and Him crucified, he meant the full gospel of Christ. The birth or the advent of Jesus being born in the flesh, living a perfect life that we could never do, being crucified, and then being in the tomb three days, and then being resurrected to newness of life. When he says the preaching of the cross, it includes the whole gospel of Jesus. And I think maybe in his mind, he might have always gone back to that powerful message that Stephen preached. You know, there's times, there's so many times when people talk about being saved and they remember who was preaching and what they preached. And uh, I, I, I don't. I guess Brother Hackett was preaching, but I was a kid when, when the Lord first convicted me. And all I remember is the Holy Spirit getting my attention and suddenly I was miserable. But Paul thought back on that message, no doubt, many times. And what Stephen preached was also the cross of Jesus, the gospel. He said, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Just like your fathers did, so do ye. He said, you crucified the Lord of glory. This morning, I am going to try to preach about the cross. It's a hard subject. It's hard because we have a, an overabundance of cultural misunderstanding about the cross. And not only an overabundance of cultural misunderstanding, but we have an avoidance of it. We have just plain bad theology about it. I put in Google the cross, see what would come up. And two things came up. The first was uh, Benny Hinn's website. And I want you to see his impression on the cross because this epitomizes or, or captures a far extreme view of what the cross is, what it's for, what it does. He said, The cross of Jesus is pathway to power, authority, and victory. The only people with genuine power over the devil are those who choose the cross, allowing it to deliver them from self. There's so much wrong with that statement that I could spend an entire message unpacking it and refuting it. But I simply want to use it as an example of a far extreme belief system in our culture. Let me start with this. How many of you believe you have power over Satan? 
These kind of faith healers and teachers teach things. I've heard them say things like this. I have claimed in faith and renounced the attacks of Satan and there will be no sickness in my house. There will be no disease. I cast it out in the name of Jesus. There will be no problems. There will be no financial difficulty. In the name of Jesus, I cast it out. Have you heard them say things like that? I have chills thinking about it. This particular false prophet was exposed by the media and he said, I didn't choose to do an interview with them because the Holy Spirit told me not to. That's a far extreme. The cross of Jesus is a pathway to power, authority, and victory. That's not what Jesus taught and I'm going to try to preach what he taught today. What does Scripture say? concerning our power over Satan. <laughs> Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Submit yourselves to God. Yes. We have no power to resist Satan without God. It is through the submission of our wills, our flesh, our desires to the power of God and the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. Jesus said that about himself so that's one false extreme. Here's a, another thing that came up, and this actually, I think, captures what the truth is. This was in the Pope's April 4th Mass. And he said, There is no salvation in ideas. There's no salvation in goodwill or in the desire to be good. The only salvation is in the crucified Christ because, like the bronze serpent, he was able to take all the poison of sin and heal us. I agree with that. Beautiful. You know what the problem is? The Pope and other religious leaders make a statement like that, understand that Jesus is the way, and then they add some other stuff to it. And religious people have always done that. Paul said about Peter, I withstood him to his face because he was wrong. What was he wrong about? He got caught up in the religious culture of his time that you could be saved, but you still needed to be circumcised. And brothers and sisters, people that we associate with that are our brothers and sometimes maybe even we ourselves, sometimes add things to the cross of Jesus Christ that he doesn't intend to be there. No. This idea that you're not fully saved until you act like you are. You're not good enough. You haven't changed your language enough. You haven't changed your clothing enough. You don't come to church enough. There is no Jesus plus any other stuff. It's only Jesus and His cross and His resurrection. There's no salvation in ideas. There's no salvation in goodwill. There's no salvation in the desire to be good. Only salvation is in Jesus Christ. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 1. I'm going to take my text from there. Verse 18 is where I'll begin. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. Well, 17 is where I'll start. 117. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. I need to pause there. If you miss the meaning of that in the language of this translation, he says, if I preach the gospel with mere wisdom of words, it will become empty or void or purposeless or without effect and without power. 
the gospel, when it is presented as an academic treatise, when it is presented as some type of theological dissertation, when it's presented as a battle of the wills or a battle of the human mind, it doesn't have spiritual power. And that's what Paul was so afraid of. And he of all people had the ability to put forth that kind of gospel if he wanted to. But he didn't want it to be made of none effect. He said, The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in wisdom of God the world... By wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe or who trust Him. For the Jews require a sign, listen to this y'all, the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What's the problem? The Jews who are trained and steeped and embedded in all their religious teachings want a sign. They said, we want a sign from you. And Jesus told them one time, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. If he was in the belly of the well, and I'll be in the belly of the earth three days, and then I'll resurrect, you'll know. You know they still didn't believe? They've accepted other messiahs other than him. Amazing. The other problem, and this affects us in our culture today, is the Greek idea. It needs to make sense to me. It needs to fit into my mind. I need to understand it fully intellectually before I can submit. We have so many people now who will only serve a God that they can understand. Brothers and sisters and anybody else listening, I don't want to serve a God I can understand. What kind of God would He be if my mind could comprehend Him, grasp Him, and really understand everything about Him? I want to be amazed by my God, and I am. And He's not confounding, but He is a God of revelation and a God of amazement and a God of miracle. We preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block and under the Greeks foolishness. I'm going to explain some more of that in a moment. But I want to go through some points about the cross for us to consider. The first point is the cross is not a thing of beauty. I don't mean this message as any criticism toward anyone. If you wear a crucifix on your neck, if you have a big old cross painted in your house, if you have a painting with a cross... That's your business. I'm not being critical. But I feel the need to speak from my heart and historically and from Scripture. The cross is not a thing of beauty. Let me tell you about the cross and what it was like. Crucifixion was often performed in order to terrorize and dissuade its witnesses from perpetuating or perpetrating particularly heinous crimes. The cross was used as a public display of punishment and scorn and as a crime deterrent. Or in the time of Jesus, it was tried to be used as a gospel deterrent. The idea was, if you see somebody suffering that bad, you won't do what they're doing. 
Now, I've never seen someone publicly executed. I don't know if you all have, but I've had people tell me who have seen a public execution that it is ghastly and something about it that, that is beyond. There's something unhuman about it to witness that. And these people in the time that Jesus was here reveled in it. They celebrated it. They went and watched a crucifixion as entertainment. They didn't think of the cross as something beautiful. They didn't wear it around their necks. Victims were left on display after death as warnings to others who might attempt dissent. In many cases, they were left on the cross long enough that the birds came and picked the flesh from their bones. The sun dried them out, desiccated their skin. And all the people, it was usually in a public place, near a public thoroughfare or street. Every time they walked by, they would remember what that person did and why they were there. Crucifixion was usually intended to provide a death that was especially painful and slow. In fact, the term excruciating literally means out of crucifying. Crux is in the middle of the word. The idea of the worst pain you can imagine is embedded in crucifixion. It was invented that way. It was gruesome and humiliating in public using whatever means were most expedient for that goal. Crucifixion methods varied considerably with location and time period. Crucifixion was used to punish slaves, pirates, and enemies of the state. It was used for the worst kind of criminals. The rest of the criminals they could throw in prison or in the stocks. They would behead them. Say, I I don't think you should talk that way at church. You still think you should wear a cross around your neck? And when you know what it's about? You're not comfortable with me saying beheading, but you want to wear something that's a symbol of worse torture and pain and punishment than that? I mean, nobody wears a guillotine around their neck. Nobody wears an executioner's axe around their neck. I could see one, hang it upside down by the handle and have the axe part on the bottom. That'd be a great necklace. Nobody wears that. I'm not being critical just for... Um, the sake of that. I'm trying to point out the absurdity of how the enemy, I believe, has twisted our culture so that we don't even think of the cross like the cross. I mean, when you see a cross, you should be abhorred. You should shudder in fear. You should be afraid. You should be terrified. Your stomach should come up in your throat. That's how these people felt about the cross. And we see it and get warm, fuzzy feelings. I don't, but that's what our culture feels like. Slaves, pirates, enemies of the state, those who committed treason, it was considered the most shameful and disgraceful way to die. Condemned Roman citizens were usually exempt from crucifixion except when they were being punished for crimes against the state such as high treason. A Roman citizen in the time of this Roman occupation and their government had such special privilege. Remember when Paul was in prison and they abused him and uh, (laughs) they found out he was a Roman citizen and they were afraid for their lives. And they said, how did this happen? He said, I was born a citizen of Rome. And the jailer said, well, I I, uh, had to pay a lot of money to get my citizenship. They were the only ones exempt from this kind of treatment. The cross is not a thing of beauty. 
Even the way that it was made wasn't beautiful. It was usually two rough pieces of wood fastened together. Sometimes it was just one stake, and the person's hands would be impaled above their head like this. The whole purpose of the cross was to make you suffer until you died. It's not something to celebrate. And when Paul says, I determined to know nothing but Jesus and His cross, he understood this and he preached in a way that the gospel he preached about the cross was shocking. It was offensive. It shocked people to their senses when they realized that a man willingly, who could have taken himself down, willingly suffered and died on a cross for me. That would have shattered their reality. It doesn't do that anymore. I want to read you something before I continue with the Scripture about the cross. The cross of Christ. This is from A.W. Tozer, The Radical Cross, if you want to read it sometime. A good book. He says, The cross of Christ is the most revolutionary thing ever to appear among men. You realize that? Our culture has completely obliterated the revolutionariness of it. You know how we have this phrase, the crux of a matter? Why do you think we say that? What does the cross have to... Why why is it a defining point in an epoch of time? Because Jesus Christ dying on the cross changed everything. It changed history. Not just spiritual ideas, it changed the world. It even changed our vocabulary where now we say something like the crux of the matter. The cross of the matter, the central point, the most important theme. That's what Jesus gave us beyond salvation. The cross of old Roman times knew no compromise. It never made concessions. It won all of its arguments by killing its opponent and silencing him permanently. It spared not Christ but slew him the same as the rest. He was alive when they hung him on that cross and completely dead when they took him down six hours later. That was the cross the first time it appeared in Christian history. And I ask the listeners, you still think it's beautiful? After Christ was risen from the dead, the apostles went out to preach His message and what they preached was the cross. And wherever they went in the wide world, they carried the cross, not literally, but symbolically, and the same revolutionary power went with them. The radical message of the cross transformed Paul through the Holy Spirit. I want to read you this too. The cross destroys the old pattern, the Adam pattern, in the, tr- the believer's life and brings it to an end. And then the God who raised Christ from the dead raises this new person and new not life. This and nothing less is true Christianity, though we cannot but recognize the sharp divergence of this concept from that held by the rank and file of evangelicals today. We dare not qualify our position. The cross stands high above the opinions of men, and to that cross all opinions must come at last for judgment. A shallow and worldly leadership would modify the cross to please the entertainment-mad saintlings who will have their fun even within the sanctuary. But to do this is to court spiritual disaster and risk the anger of the lamb-turned-lion. That's scary. Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And our thoughts are made manifest before God. There's a terror 
in God. There's an idea that if I don't tell you purely and accurately as best I can about the cross and what it means, it's, it is not something to put up behind a praise and worship band and celebrate. It's horrendous. It's destructive. It's uncompromising. It destroys its adversary. It destroyed Jesus. The cross is a sign of shame. That's the second point I want you to understand. And I won't dwell on it, but I will just, as support of that, remind you. Now, usually when we see the crucifix and paintings and things of Jesus, it's sort of respectful and He has a little loincloth. It's not how it was. They stripped the offender naked and He was on public display to be shamed. Everybody who walked by saw everything about Him. Our Lord. The Savior, God, naked before the sinful men that He died for. Does that give you an understanding of His love? Not only did He suffer and die, He suffered shame. He was spit on, He was smacked, He was beaten, and then He was hung naked before sinful men. You know why? Because a person who was a criminal deserved that kind of death in the Roman government's eyes. And Jesus died the kind of death that a criminal deserved to die so that we wouldn't have to. But there's nothing glorious about the cross. I, I, I don't understand some of the hymns we sing. And I don't want to be critical of hymn writers, but talking about the cross is beautiful and glorious and wonderful. No. It's terrible. It's, it killed God. Do you, do you understand that? Now, you can be philosophically religious and theological. Well, the cross didn't really kill him. Jesus died of his own will. No, he was killed. His body was killed by the cross. They came by and stabbed him with a spear because usually he'd still be alive and water and blood ran out. He was already dead. The next point that I want you to understand is the cross is an offense. It is offensive. And me preaching this day, this way, that I'm trying to preach, uh, some of you probably kind of feel uncomfortable, kind of squirming in your skin. It's because the cross is offensive. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to hear about it. We're not supposed to like to hear about it. That's the whole point of the gospel of Jesus and the cross. It's supposed to radically get your attention. Something that's so unspeakable to even think about. And then you tell me that a man died on that for me. Amen. In Matthew 13, 57, we're told about Jesus that in his home country, they were offended in him. In other words, he began to teach to them and preach to them the gospel of who he was and what that re would require, which included the cross. And... Uh, Jesus said unto them, A prophet's not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. Matthew 16. I want to turn over there and read just a little bit. And this will show you how the cross can be offensive to a Christian in a way that they don't understand the truth. Matthew 16, verse 21. 
From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed on a cross and be raised the third day. Now here's the offense that religious people can have at it. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him. saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be done to you. Let me put it in modern words. This is how Peter felt. Over my dead body, they're not going to kill you. I won't let it happen. How did Jesus feel about Peter being offended? Here's how he answered him. He turned and he said unto Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you savor not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life will lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. But what is a man profited if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with His angels and then shall reward every man according to His works. What was Peter offended about? You thought about that? It wasn't just that he didn't want his friend to die. It was that he... Because, listen, Jesus gives that away here. He says, You savor not the things of God, but the things of men. What are you worried about, Peter? You know part of what he was worried about? Jesus, if you preach this kind of gospel, nobody's going to listen. They're all going to scatter. All the crowds will go away. You've gotten so popular. Look at the good you're doing. Look at all the people you're healing. I have no doubt in my mind that Peter had in his mind, and maybe he expressed verbally, the humanitarianism of Jesus. You're helping everybody. You're going to give all that up? That still is the offense of the cross today. A man of God gets up and tries to preach about the cross and the crucified life, Jesus Christ dying for our sins, and that we must bear our own cross with Him. And I will explain that. And that's an offense to the world because they want to feel good, they want to have fun, and they want to claim the cross as authority and power and prosperity. Jesus not only rebuked him and said, you're like Satan. In fact, he called him Satan. What Peter said to him was so bad, Satan might as well have said it. Do you realize, Peter wanted to thwart the predestined purpose of God for the redemption of humanity because he was offended by the cross. And he didn't want his friend to die. He says, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. Listen, if we can't stomach the preaching of the cross, if we have ears that won't listen to the preaching of the cross, we'll be an offense to God, which is a lot scarier than being offended ourselves. The fourth point I want you to get. Death on a cross is a fulfillment of a curse. Nothing good in that either. Before the cross was ever invented... Uh, This was written in Deuteronomy, and this was not talking about a cross. It was talking more of a a gallows type thing, a a tree. Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23 says, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, you shall hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but you shall in any wise bury him that day, 
For he that is hanged is accursed of God. That your land be not defiled, which the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Jews knew that. They knew that it was a curse to die that way. And a man became cursed. Paul explained this in Galatians 3 verse 10 through 14. I want to read you this. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. In other words, every person who is self-justified through anything they can do is under a curse. If you are trying to be good enough to win your way into heaven, you're under a curse. That's what he's saying. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. This is the purpose of the law. That, Well, as Paul said, it, the law appeared that sin might appear exceedingly sinful. That there is this idea in the law that nobody could keep it. You could try as hard as you can. You could keep some of it. and you, There's no way. It's not possible. Their law was so intricate and detailed, they had rules about a distance you could walk on the Sabbath. God gave the law to show that it was impossible to be justified through anything our flesh can do. In fact, I never thought about this until lately, but you consider it. We had a chance. We had a chance to be justified in the flesh. Remember Adam? The man of the earth? The flesh man? He had a chance. He, was, he started out in perfection, in sinless environment with God. He had one rule that he had to keep with his flesh. He couldn't just eat the apple spiritually. He had to actually consume it. If it was an apple or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we always call it an apple. But whatever kind of fruit it was, he had one rule for his flesh to obey. He had a chance to be justified through the flesh and failed. And then God, in a kind of ironic, tragical satire, gives Moses the law to let people see if they could justify themselves by the flesh. And every time you try, you fall short. And sin appears exceedingly sinful. No man is justified by the law in the sight of God, for it is evident the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that does these shall live in them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on the tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Isn't that beautiful? An innocent man took on him the curse of humanity and died in our place so that God could ever after look at a saved child of God without wrath, without hatred, without a thirst for justice or vengeance. The justice of God was fulfilled in Jesus Christ on the cross to such an extent that He no longer needs to punish you for your sins if you're saved. Your sins are already paid for if you've come under the blood of Jesus. Doesn't mean there aren't consequences for bad choices and sin in this life. There are. But it's not like you think. 
People have this idea of the judgment day that we're all going to be standing in line for eternity. You know, and they joke and say things like, I hope you're not in line behind me. I don't think judgment's going to be like that. There is therefore now no condemnation of them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. I don't know how judgment will be for us, but it may just be that we understand fully for the first time what Jesus paid for us. And then we're in the presence of God. God doesn't need to punish us anymore. He already punished His Son on our behalf. And Jesus was of infinite worth. He, his blood was perfect. The atonement that He made was permanent and eternal. There's nothing, there's nothing that can be added to it. I don't think we understand that most of the time because like, like so many religions do, we add Jesus, yes, salvation, add baptism. Jesus, yes, but you got to sing these kind of songs. Jesus, yes, but you need a church covenant. Jesus, yes, but this, this, this. All these silly rules have nothing to do with the preaching of the cross. The preaching of the cross is Jesus only. You're broken. You need to be repaired. You need to be made new. You need to be healed. And only Jesus can do that. I have two more points I want you to be aware of. The next one, the cross is a sign. The cross is a sign of condemnation. When you see a cross, which we don't... Well, we see these little phony crosses that aren't crosses. Used to, you see a cross, there's a dead man on it. Or a dying man on it. Or a man on the way to it. That's how the cross appeared. It's a sign of condemnation. When you saw that, there was an understanding that the man on the cross deserved what he was getting. That he was guilty. When the gospel of the cross of Jesus is preached today, there is a spiritual understanding, just like there was naturally in history. There's a spiritual understanding that we deserve the divine wrath of God. That's part of what it takes to come to an understanding of who God is and who you are and who you're not and that you need to seek Him. That you deserve to be punished for who you are. why the brother said, O wretched man that I am. Paul said, Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? See, he looked in the perfect law of liberty and the preaching of the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus and the resurrection and newness of life and he recognized he had nothing in his flesh to satisfy God. And that may be one of the most important points about the cross. The cross eliminates all possibility of self-reliance. Why? Because the only man who could do it already did all that could be done. All that will have to be done, it's done. It's finished. He said it is finished. Now there's a false doctrine circulating, especially in Western Christianity, that Jesus did all that would ever have to be done so you don't have to do anything and you'll be saved. No, you still have to repent. That is the gospel Jesus preached. Repent. That's the gospel that He taught the apostles to preach. Repent. Why did they need to repent? Because when they heard the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ, who they were and who He was and what He did for them, the only logical conclusion is to come to God begging for mercy. 
The cross, as I said already, utterly subdues and destroys its opponent. There's no self-reliance. It doesn't matter how strong the man on the cross is, given enough time, it will destroy him. The cross is indifferent to your socioeconomic status, to your titles and lands, to your willpower, to your strength. It ultimately destroys the flesh. And the preaching of the cross spiritually does the very same thing. It doesn't care how wealthy you are. It doesn't care how poor you are. It doesn't care how smart you are. It doesn't care how good you are. It destroys your flesh. Now, I'm not speaking about the cross itself as having any power. I'm speaking metaphorically about what that means. That Jesus in dying on the cross, His flesh was destroyed and your self-reliance has to be destroyed. There's a reason the scriptures talk about having no confidence in the flesh. And the cross, because of this, is a stumbling block for those trained in legalism and self-reliance. You know what one of the hardest things about religion is? Getting a good church person to admit they're a sinner. (laughs) Well, you think God's impressed that you go to church one or two or three times a week? Like he owes us now. It's a stumbling block. It is so hard for religiously trained people to yield their idea of self-worth. And we never tell ourselves that honestly. We say, oh, I know I'm nothing without Jesus. But really, deep down inside, most people, and maybe all of us at some times, have this sense of, I'm doing what I should be doing. And the cross destroys that. Because there's nothing we can do to parallel or approach unto what Jesus did. It destroys all sense of self-reliance. Not only does it do that, I love this picture in Colossians 2 verse 14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which is contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. That's talking about what Jesus did. When Jesus died and He was nailed to the cross... All religious self-reliance, all ideas of anything justifying anybody was nailed to that cross with Him and died with Him, and it's over. It's finished. There's no more law. It was fulfilled in Christ. There's still a moral law and a natural law and things God expects, but the idea that the possibility of justification through keeping a law, it's gone. never worked anyway. It was the whole point. But the very possibility of it is over. I want to read you a couple different translations of that verse that help us understand it. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us, and He has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. Oh man, that's beautiful. We owed God. We don't owe Him anymore. And yet, so many religious people live our lives with this idea, this undue burden, this silly weight and yoke that God didn't give us that we we owe God and we have to repay Him. How are you going to repay Jesus for that? He erased the certificate of debt with all of its obligations. Another way this is translated, He has blotted out by His authority the bill of our debts which was adverse to us and He took it from the midst of us and nailed it to His cross. 
what we owe is paid. It's paid. And not only can you never be good enough, you don't even have to try. Take that weight off. In Isaiah 44, there's a prophecy of this coming to pass. The Lord says, I've blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions, and as a cloud your sins return unto me, for I have redeemed you. When God saves a person, all possibility of damnation is over. If you really know the Lord, He's blotted out your transgressions like a cloud, and nothing can change that. That'll make you want to serve Him. And when you sin, it'll make you brokenhearted. When you fall away, it'll make you want to come back. But it doesn't make you perfect in the flesh. And it never will. If you don't know the Lord yet, if you've never tasted of His peace, if you don't understand, maybe you're listening to me preach and you... There's a sense that it's different than something you've heard before. And there's a sense that you know it's true, but you don't really grasp it. If you've never had that peace with God, I want you to know. Just like I feel in my heart with the Holy Spirit showing me. There's nothing you can do to justify yourself. Our justification is a forensic idea. It's a legal declaration of imputed righteousness. God looks at us, but on the way to looking at us, He sees what Jesus did for us, and therefore He looks at us as justified. There's no more legal obligation to fulfill what we owe Him. It's done. And what does it take for you? You have to repent. What is repentance? It's more than just changing your mind. It's more than just turning around. It is recognizing on a deeper than an intellectual level, on a deep internal level, that you're not worthy. (laughs) And then realizing that the one who was worthy paid for you and going to Him and throwing yourself on His mercy. That's, That's what repentance is. It's not just apologizing for things you did wrong because you've done things you don't even remember. It's not just confession. It is true, confession is made with the mouth unto salvation or with regards to salvation. But it's not what you say that saves you. It's the surrender. It's the unconditional letting go of all self-reliance. That's what it takes. When that happens, you experience a resurrection, a newness of life that is a taste of what we're all going to experience one day if we're saved. When Christ comes back. Permanent resurrection. I just want to give you a chance to seek the Lord. Whether it's here today in this service or you're listening to this recording later. Just bow down to Him. Pray to Him. Ask Him for His mercy. And He is merciful. He's so merciful that everything you need has already been done. He just needs to apply the benefits to you. I think I'll stop. God bless you. I pray this message went into your minds and hearts. 
that it's a relief, but that it's also an education on some levels. I pray that you will never think about the cross the same way again. Never think about Jesus the same way again. God bless you.